0: Well, looks like we're in place, and everyone's looking at me expectantly, so let's go ahead and get started, and uh, hey, we're starting a minute early, maybe we'll finish a minute early. <laughs> Don't count oh, it. Nice. <laughs> Ed Martin, would you open us in prayer tonight? Sure.
1: Father, we thank you for another day that you've given us to live for you, to pray up. and uh, pray that uh, we would be mindful of your spirit and you work in us, Lord, to, uh, to guide us and lead us uh, in the ways that you would have us to go. thank you for the opportunity to be here tonight is to study uh, your word and to study more uh, things uh, that are dealing with you and,
0: and how you um, created the universe and, uh, and, and look in, in your interaction with us. We just thank you, Lord.
1: Mark, and uh, for coming here to teach us about this dispensationalism. Uh, We just ask these things in Jesus' name.
0: Amen. Okay, we are already in the fourth week, and already I'm despairing that I'm going to get through these notes. And what I'd like to do tonight is combine a couple of sections here to streamline things a little bit. Uh, Remember last week we ended talking about progressive revelation Saying that there's there is a there is a progress of revelation. God doesn't give all of our information to us all at once, uh, but gives it to us uh, piece by piece as we're able to handle it and as we need it. And uh, part of the uh, revelation comes to us in a in if I can put it this way, something of a of a dispensation specific way. Uh, not everything is equally. Applicable to us now. Everything you know, Scripture says, Second, uh, Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen, uh, that that everything in scriptural Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, etc. So everything in the Scripture is profitable, but not everything is equally applicable. Uh, see if we can parts that is a fine difference between the two, and we'll see if we can't do that tonight. And what I really want to hone in on tonight, pretty much it'll be probably the entire discussion tonight, is to talk about the law, the Mosaic law, uh, which doesn't, didn't come specifically to the church, it came to Israel. Hers are the law and the covenants and the prophets, and, uh, and they're not really given to us specifically or directly. Uh, they're given to Israel. So what do we do with this law? And if I can take you first to, to page 54, uh, what I'd like to do is do a, something of a summary of the function of the law, and then we'll come back here to page 13 where we, where we left off and see if we can't walk through uh, some specifics when it comes to the profitability of the law. What do we do with it? Uh, what, what do we do with these, with these rules? Are these rules for us? Are some of them for us? Are, are all of them for us? Um, what, what do we do with these rules? And even if they aren't applicable, how are they profitable? Okay, So that's the question or set of questions that we're asking and answering tonight. So starting on page 54 then, let's talk about the law. First we have to define it. The term, namos in Greek here, has multiple meanings in scripture. It can mean the Old Testament canon. The Old Testament is the law. Uh, sometimes it's part of the law or the Pentateuch. You know, so the, we have the law, the prophets, and the writings through the three sections of the Jewish canon. Uh, so, sometimes we find that it's a governing principle. For instance, we have the law of sin or the law of faith. This is a principle. But most of the time, most of the time, when we see the word law in Scripture, it has reference to, to the law of Moses. That is that specific set of rules, that code that starts in Exodus 20 and, uh, and continues off and on all the way through the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Okay, so that's uh, this, this law code. This is typically uh, what that word means when we see it used in the New Testament and in the Old. That's the most common usage. Okay, so this, that's, that's really the focus of our, of our discussion tonight. Now, this law comes to Israel, as I say here, indivisible unity. We find several texts that say this. James 2.10, for instance, says, Whoever keeps the whole law, whoever obliges himself or puts himself under the law and stumbles at one point is guilty of all. So it rises and falls as a unit. Galatians 5:3 says similarly anyone who receives circumcision says I'm going to obey the law at that point obliges himself to keep the whole thing okay he, he is under obligation to keep the whole law so whenever we look for this 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 term in Paul for instance 119 <laughs> times he uses it it's always singular he's always thinking of the law as a unity he doesn't really he's not really talking about laws per se, although the law is made up of laws, he always talks about the law, not the laws or laws within the law. It's the law, and because he always thinks of it as a unit. It stands and falls uh, together. Now, it's true that we can look at this law and, say that, and, and look and see there's different kinds of laws. Some of the laws were there to govern uh, the way the sacrifices were all offered. Some of them were there to, to govern the nation. Some of them were just moral precepts. And so it is possible, I think, to divide the law into categories such as that. But Paul doesn't think in those terms. For him, it's all one unit. You can't just parse it up and say this section of the law continues and this section doesn't all of it rises and falls together, even though we can actually see within the law different kinds of rules there. I say here uh, also that the law has inseparable penalties. If you oblige yourself to obey the law, you're not just under the laws, you're under its penalties. So as many as are under the works of the law are under a curse. Because it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things, written in the book of the law to perform them... Excuse me. Yes? You said page 54 but it's actually 52. Oh, that's right. You've got different notes. I'm sorry. Yeah, 52 for you. Yeah, yeah is A hair different. Sorry. My bad. 52 for you. Uh, and perhaps we've spilled on to 53 by now. I don't know. No, I was okay. Okay, so there's penalties attached to the law. Uh, incidentally, we're on page 52. Uh, um, I'm trying to combine a couple of sections here tonight, so anybody who's coming in a little bit late tonight might be very confused. So uh, help your classmates out if they sneak in late. It says here that the law brings about wrath. Everyone who's under the work of the law is under a curse because everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book to perform them Perform them or under a curse. So it's impossible to say that one is under a law and and there be no framework for the enforcement of that law. Okay, a law without penalties is, as Dr. McInnis said, just good advice. Okay, so if you're if you're going to say these laws are for me, they're all for me, and furthermore, I am subject to the penalties associated with that law. Okay, all this uh, we're, we're building to something here, and specifically, we're building to the argument that. We're not under this law, okay? Because of the of because of the, because of all these details. Either either you're under the whole law, whether it's civil or ceremonial or or moral, you're under the whole thing, and in fact you're under the penalties as well. And most people are you know, balk a little bit of that. You know, your kids you know talk back to you. and Sorry. Out in the backyard, we've got a stone here. We tend to balk a little bit at, uh, at, at some of those things. Okay. The law was, however, intrinsically good, because it derived from God. It's a, really a reflection of the moral character and fiber of God. Um, and given, and, and, and as given, was perfectly righteous. In fact, if someone could keep the law perfectly, He'd be right with God. Now nobody could, so it really is just hypothetical. But in theory, uh, that was the that was the stipulation of the, uh, uh, of, the uh, of the of the of the the dispensation of law. Do this and live. But that was the tension. Nobody can do this, and so we're looking for someone to do it on our behalf. Okay. So who are the subjects of the law? Well, Scripture says that the law was given to Israel. Specifically to Israel. Leviticus 26, these are the statutes and ordinances and laws which the Lord established between him and the sons of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. These are the laws that governed the Jewish people. It didn't govern the Babylonians or the Egyptians or whoever might have lived in Peru at the time. Okay, It was given to the people of Israel to obey. Psalm 147, he declares his words to Jacob, his statutes, to his ordinances, and his ordinances to Israel. And here's the, here's the kicker. He has not dealt this way with any other nation. As for his ordinances, they have not even known them. And Romans 9.4 uh, reinforces this. To Israel belong the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, and the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. Okay, so these, this law is given specifically... To Israel, And by default, it's not given to us, at least in the sense of you must obey. Okay, It's given to us in the broadest sense in that it is profitable, but it's not given for you to obey. In fact, Scripture says specific, explicitly that it was not given to Gentiles, and probably with maybe an exception or two, I'm guessing most of you are in that category, unless so there's a... There's a a latent Jew here, an uh, ethnic Jew. Uh, this this is given to Gentiles. Deuteronomy four eight. What great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? A rhetorical question. None. Yes, ma'am. Uh huh.
1: Um, when I was reading um, that, that there were also non non Jews amongst the children of Israel. Yes
0: would the law still apply to them since they were living? Well, I'll give you a yes and a no. Um, those who actually proselytized or actually went through the ceremonies to become part of the nation of Israel ended up being treated as Israelites, and in fact, their assuming they intermarried with an Israelite, their children would have had the full rights as Jews. Okay, um, Now, as Gentiles, they wouldn't have necessarily. Uh, but uh, you know, and you know, for instance, the probably the most visible thing is there's only so far you can get within the within the temple precincts. Okay. Uh, but their children then would have been brought into the covenant, and so yes, there very few actually went through that procedure. Okay. But in that case, they would have become Jews. Okay. Those who were living in the uh, in the in within the borders as strangers and aliens, sojourners, these terms that are used in the Old Testament, would have been governed by those rules because they lived in the country. Okay. But ultimately, there would be a realization that this really isn't for them. Because unless they actually be, you know, you know, amalgamated themselves, immersed themselves into Judaism, they're still on the outside looking in. Okay, and so, for instance, the ceremonial laws would have no 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 impact on that. But they would have been obliged as people living in the land, in the country, they would have had to obey. the Just like, you know, you go over to Canada, you've got to obey the laws. Those laws aren't really for you. They aren't written for you. They're written for Canadian citizens. But when you're there, you do have to obey them. Okay, so it would, I think... It would Something similar to that. Okay. So, Gentiles aren't given the law. Gentiles do not have the law, Romans 2.14. Now, it doesn't mean that Gentiles are without restraint. They are without the Mosaic law. Those who do not have this written, those who don't, have this mosaic law still have the law written upon their hearts what's Romans 2:14 1516 tells us that that they have the law of God written upon their hearts and so they do have this obligation to obey God at the same time this is not saying that they have the Mosaic law written upon their heart in all of its detail in all of its detail nor does it maintain, mean that the Gentiles could not voluntarily submit to the law and enter into the benefits of the law as strangers and sojourners. So there's your your question right there. And and there's rules as to how to get in into the community and how you would be a participant in it. Nor does it even mean that the Gentiles were not responsible for the specific revelation contained within the law. They were obliged before God to know what was there and, and and to... And to do what was necessary to express faith in God. The Gentiles, ideally, we find very early on, Exodus 20, uh, were to come to employ the priestly services of the nation of Israel. Okay? Israel was to be what? A kingdom of priests. Kingdom of priests for the nations. Okay? And in fact, there was a enormous section of the of the temple mount that was dedicated to the Gentiles it was the court of the Gentiles remember when Jesus comes in 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 there uh, right before right after the uh, triumphal entry and uh, he's upset with those who have set up shop there and what does he say my house is supposed to be what a house of prayer for the nations so move out of the way so that the nations can have a place to pray. Now there weren't any. I mean that was the failure of the Jewish people but that was the ideal. There was supposed to be an enormous number of people coming, flocking to Israel to employ her uh, high priestly services. I think we get a little bit bit of a picture of that under Solomon when the nations of the earth troop past and, and bring their gifts to Solomon. I think we just get a little glimpse into what we can expect in the millennium when nations will stream to her light, okay, uh, but but so 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 these these nations were responsible for the revelation that was available to them, but the law wasn't given to them or for them. D here, though, it does mean that the Mosaic law was not given to Gentiles with the same range of function in which it served the covenant community. Not having the law, Gentiles are judged as those not having the law. They're judged without the law. Not being a part of the covenant community, Gentiles would find many of the individual laws stripped of meaning and impossible to keep. For instance, there's rules here against mixed seed and mixed clothing, and the point was to distinguish Jews from the nations. Well, if you're part of the nations... Well, that doesn't make any sense, okay? Because you're not trying to separate from the nations if you're the nations, okay? So so some of these laws would have been head-scratchers uh, for folks in the nations. Yes, question? What does
1: that really mean, to say that they're judged without the law? I mean, because the Lord is still, you know, I, I guess I don't really understand. They're not judged by people, or I don't...
0: They're not judged by the standard of the law. So, okay, so if...
1: I mean, being Christians, we're judged by...
0: Right so I, I don't understand. Right. Right yeah. We still have yeah, there is a sense in which we are still judged by a law according to the perfect law of liberty, right? right? We as Christians are judged according to the perfect law of liberty. So when we come to the judgment seat of Christ, it's it's not as though our obedience to that law determines whether we get into heaven or not, but it does determine in some sense reward and and the uh, and the approval that, that God gives to us on a on a you know, on a, on a, on a as, as he as he examines the words preparatory to our place in heaven. Okay, so we are judged according to that law. We're not judged according to the law of Moses. That that stand. In fact, we're going to get to that here. That standard is not for us. Okay, and so. We, as the church, are in this category of Gentiles who are not judged according to the law of Moses. So, God does not expect us to keep every one of the precepts between Exodus and Deuteronomy in order to express our faith in an appropriate way. We are judged according to a different law. Okay, And the same with the Gentile nations. They wouldn't be judged according to this law. In fact, in many of the cases, they couldn't be, the laws wouldn't make sense. For Good question. So why do we have the law? Why why was the law given? Well, I think there's there's more than one function. I think oftentimes it's sort of funneled down to, okay, to show us that we need Christ. And that's part of the function there, but I don't think that's the whole of it. So let's see if we can't tease out the, the entirety of the function of the law here tonight. First of all, it was to regulate the life of the nation, okay? It does the same thing, did the same thing for Israel as the law code in the state of Michigan exists to regulate the people of the state of Michigan. Okay? It was a way of life. This is, this, is, this is the set of rules by which their society functioned. And okay? that's, that's, that's the first and perhaps the most, most obvious function to the Jew. We have these laws because we have to have a civil society. So these rules are in place so that we have a, a reasonable society. It was also there to convict, convict of sin. Romans 3.20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And knowledge is here not the simple, oh, I, I didn't know that was a sin before. But rather this law is a, a, as an instrument of reminder here through which the Holy Spirit would convince the sinner of his guilt. You aren't keeping the law. You haven't kept the law. Okay? And so they are convicted of sin, their need for righteousness, and the reality of judgment. Remember, that's what conviction is. You know, those, those three things. And uh, the law was a convicting agent in the Old Testament. And it told people of their, their need, their lack, and their, and, the, and, the, uh, and their future, if nothing occurs. Uh, Galatians 3, the law was added because of or really for the purpose of transgression with the result that it shuts up everyone under sin. And so the law is there so that everyone knows he is a sinner. It convicts of sin, makes people aware of and knowledgeable of uh, the fact that they are sinners. In fact, it's there. Uh, Paul says twice in Romans here to increase sin, which actually startles us a little bit because it seems odd that God would give something to people to increase their sin, but that's the word that's used, okay? That is, it graphically exposes the true nature of sin and its dreadfulness, So it intensifies or magnifies sin, I think, is the idea here. The law came in so that the transgression would be magnified. It's not just this vague precept written upon the heart, but this is actually written in stone now. And so when you disobey it, there's no question. It intensifies, magnifies, uh, increases sin. And Romans 7 says, through the commandment, the sin becomes utterly sinful. It it tells us the the true nature and dreadfulness of what this sin would do. And so the law as such was inherently holy. It was good because it was a reflection of the character of God, but it was turned into an instrument of death. It added flagrancy and defiance to the sinfulness of men. They know what they're supposed to do, and they don't do it. They could no longer plead ignorance. Brings us then to the next point. It condemns all who are obliged to keep it. It really seems kind of negative here, but hey, that's what we've got. Romans 3.19, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be shut up and all the world may become accountable to God. And so there's a condemnatory function of, of the law specific to Israel, but I think it applies in principle to the whole world. Okay, Yes, the Gentile nations are not obliged to keep the law of Moses, but they are obliged to keep the law of God, and so they're answerable to a moral code linked, I think, in some sense, to the Mosaic law, and so it's condemnatory.
1: Exactly that. Romans three nineteen. Whatever the law says, mm-hmm. okay. So it is that. That's not referring to the Old Testament Mosaic Law because we just read the verses. You just read the verses that said specifically yeah. the Old Testament Mosaic Law in and of itself is not for right. the nations. It's for it's for Israel. Now we see it says that all the world may become accountable to God. Right. So right. that that. Yeah. There contradiction
0: here right yeah and I think I think the idea here is even though that specific law you know you know the law that says you know if you've got a scab on your finger you have to go to the priest to find out whether you can rejoin society or not that particular law is not for me but in principle that's what law does okay it, whether it's the Mosaic law or the law of Christ in the New Testament, or the law of God written upon the heart that's available to all persons without exception throughout the history of, of the created universe. So I think that's, the, in principle, what the law does. Okay. And then finally, it serves as a custodian until Christ comes. Galatians 3 says this, before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up, To the faith, which was later to be revealed, therefore the law has become our tutor, or probably better, a custodian, Uh, probably not, and and, you know, it's, think think of a a, a child here. Uh, A a child is, it it, it is that which comes alongside and shepherds him. So the tutor idea, you can see where the tutor idea comes from, probably better, it's a custodian, uh, if I can say a foster parent, a, a custodian, until... Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. Okay, so this phrase here, until Christ, is, is, is a temporal thing. It had as an end, it had an end and a beginning. In fact, Galatians 3 says it starts 400 years after Moses, uh, after Abraham, and ends with the death of Christ. Okay, and so this, this tutor or this custodian. Is not so much an instructor but a guardian that accompanied a minor until he got to adulthood, and so the law is described here as having a temporal limitation. It started 400 years after Abraham and it stopped with the death of Christ. Okay, so the 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 immediate applicability of the law had a had a window, and it's we're no longer in that window. Okay, which brings us then to the question of. The Christian and the law. What are we supposed to do with this law? If it's not for us, what's, what's, what's the value of it? Well, I think we can say, first of all, that the Christian is not under law for any part of his salvation. Okay, that's the first thing. And usually there's nobody arguing at this point. I hope you're not arguing. You don't have to keep the law in order to be justified, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. That's pretty plain. Now, Christ kept the law on the behalf of those who had to keep it, and so there is a sense in which we are obliged to keep the law in that sense for our for our justification, but we can't. Someone had to do it for us. Okay, so by the work, by our works of the law, no flesh is justified. But the the saving cross work of Christ. Uh, is is I think here a an active obedience of Christ uh, on our behalf and for us uh, in order to uh, give us our justification? Nor is the law part of our sanctification. Okay, <coughs> sin is not to be the master of over you because you are not under law, but under grace. Okay. You're not under the law principle any longer. You're under the grace principle. Now, we're going to, we're going to talk a little bit about that. That doesn't mean that it's a, you know, it's a free-for-all okay. now. Uh, but it does mean that that law no longer governs uh, our, our behavior. I don't think it's even a way of life for us. Okay. Neither is it a part of his security. So it's not, it's, it's not as though keeping the law will keep us saved or keep us secure in Christ. Because well, the law could not do weak as it is through the flesh. God did. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In him. Who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So it's not as though we have to keep the law in order to stay saved. Christ kept the law. The end. For our salvation, uh, we do not we do not uh, look to the law. Why? Well, because the law has been fulfilled in Christ. Romans eight. What the law could not do, we just read, Christ did. Galatians two. Because the law through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is, thus, it is as though when Christ died, I died. And, as a result, it's no longer me who lives, but Christ, who lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ not died needlessly. Christ did not die needlessly. He had to die in order to meet the demands of the law, and he did that on my behalf. Okay, So the law is done, because Christ completed it. He kept it perfectly in his life, and then he, by extension then, he even died, even though he didn't need to for any violations that he had committed, he died to meet the penalty for those who had violated the law, and which is sometimes called here, the active and passive obedience of Christ. Talk about that in Doctrine of Christ. I think we talked about this about four years ago when I was here. What do we mean by active obedience? Well, actively, Christ obeyed the commands of the law. He earned positive merit. He secured righteousness that he might give to us. We receive a righteousness that is not our own. We receive the righteousness from God. That is not our own. So he kept the law perfectly, and that righteousness is imputed to our account, so that we have positive righteousness before God. We also get, though, passive obedience. That is the suffering obedience of Christ. You see, passive. Think think in terms of passion, the suffering obedience of Christ. In his suffering, he received the penalties that were due us, absorbed its guilt, and made payment. Uh, For the guilt that we imputed to him, so we have this great exchange: I give him my guilt; he pays it on the cross. He gives me his righteousness that he earned in life. Okay, so that's that's the 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 great transaction uh, that gives us justification. But it's all tied to the law. Okay, Christ had to keep the law. And and, you know, sometimes I I I give a trick question. Sometimes I'm telling you it's a trick, so you. No, you probably want to answer oppositely what you think, but uh, I say, is it is it enough for Christ to have died for our sins? And usually, is is that enough to get us into heaven? Christ died for our sins, and usually the answer is, well, yeah. But actually, it's a trick question because not only did he have to die for our sins, he had to live the perfect life on our behalf as well. So it's not as just that the penalties are paid, but actually we have positive merit that grants us standing in heaven, okay, and so both of these are tied up with what Christ does to the law, and having done this, the law's done, it's cancelled out so by by being co-crucified with Christ, the law's requirement has been met, its function is terminated in Christ, the believer is regarded by God as having kept the law perfectly and any attempt to rely on the law by doing it is misguided and futile There's, there's, there's nothing to be gained in keeping the law uh, because you can't do it, and any feeble attempts that you make certainly can't contribute at all uh, to your own salvation. Christ did it for us perfectly. And the hypothetical salvation that might have been found in keeping the law perfectly is really no longer possible because it really no longer exists. As, the law no longer vi- exists as a viable entity. Christ completed it for us. The only way to get it is through Him. Okay, and so having fulfilled the law then, Christ abolished it as the rule of life for the believer. So Christ not only did the law, he retired it from service. That means that specific stipulations and sanctions no longer govern the believer or bind his conduct. No Christian today is obliged to pursue a lifestyle dictated by the precepts of the Mosaic Code. The only precepts found in the Mosaic Code that are binding to gate are those that can be demonstrated in isolation from the Mosaic system. Okay. So in other words, there's there's and, and we're going to get into some specifics here, because that that's probably one of the hardest things that we do. We we really have to look at these laws one by one and say, okay, why is that law there? Okay? Is this something I need to do? Is there some sort of principle behind it that makes sense and informs the way I, I go about my life? Okay? And sometimes Sometimes there is. Sometimes there is. Sometimes we, it, we we scratch our heads and say, "I'm not sure what that one's about." You know, don't boil the kid in its mother's milk. The, the kid being a baby goat. It's not the midnight snack I I, I go for normally, uh, but. Uh, but there was some reason it was there. Probably has something to do with some sort of a, a cultic ritual, a, idolatrous ritual practiced by the nations. We're just not sure. It's not recorded for us. Um, and so when we're trying to apply that to ourselves, obviously the point is not to, you know, the, the, the act. But here probably is to avoid idolatry, which is a, which is a good Guiding and governing principle that is repeated in the New Testament. Okay, um, you know, it's, anybody gone gone over to Israel? Yeah, if you find there there that, that that's the that's the law that uh, that uh, really governs a lot of the kosher codes there for the Jewish people. You can't have milk and meat together in the same meal. In fact, they've got if you go to Israel, you go into we went into the mall and. Uh, you know, we—you we, know, you, you have an hour to get your lunch and then get back on the bus. So we went in. And there was a food court, and we grabbed our food and we sat down. Security guard came over. There were there were green seats and there were yellow seats, and we were all sitting together. In a group and Security guard said he, he points at two or three of us. And said, you you can't sit here. Why not? And he because these, these are these are these are milk tables. And you got meat, you know, hamburger or something, and so you have to eat at the meat tables, and, and the rest of the folks get to eat at the milk tables, and so and so. I mean, in fact, even Wendy's, you could get a you could get a frosty, but you had to go around the back in a in a sealed off little cubicle where you could get the frosty because that was a milk. You couldn't eat that with the you couldn't eat that with the burger, but uh, so all that from from this rule. That's how they apply it. <laughs> um, it probably probably completely misguided. Uh, but uh, that's, how, that's how the Jews, even today, still apply that rule. That's beyond the scope of our notes here, but that's just interesting. Okay, so Christ fulfilled the law and abolished it for the people. 1 Corinthians 9, 20, and 21, Paul describes himself as a person not under the law. To those who are without the law, I became as without the law. To those who were still operating as under the law, Israelites, I I still had no problem living like a Jew in order to share the gospel with them. But even though I'm not under the law, he says, I'm not under the law. But I'll still act like it for an entree for the gospel. Uh, But I'm not under that law. But I am under the law of Christ but I'm not under the law in the same sense that these Jews are. Galatians 3, before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law. We already read this one. Ephesians 2.15, Christ abolished in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Colossians 2, Christ has canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of the decrees against us which were hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authority, he made a public display of them, having triumphed, Over them through him. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to festival or new moon or Sabbath day. These are stipulations in the Mosaic law. These are mere shadows of what is to come. The substance belongs to Christ. Christ has completed it. The shadows have have passed on. Okay. And this, this sometimes comes as a surprise. You know, well, you say, well, what about the Ten Commandments? I mean, we're. There's people waging war as to whether we should be able to have the Ten Commandments on in, in our in our in our in our courts or in our schools or, or whatever. If I'm saying that the uh, the law's been set aside, then those ten commandments have been set aside too, or should we really be pushing for that? And and, and and my answer is here well, even the Ten Commandments, as the Ten Commandments have been set aside. Now, all but one of these is repeated. In some form in the New Testament, one is not. Which one? Sabbath, Sabbath command. I and mean, that one's that one's not repeated at all. Okay. So there is. It, it's not as though we can go around and kill people and, and, and curse and not worship God and, and things like that because because we're not under the Ten Commandments. Because we are under the law of Christ, which has a lot of continuity with the Ten Commandments, but we're not under the Ten Commandments as the Ten Commandments. We're under the law of Christ, which has a lot of overlap with the Ten Commandments. Okay? And then, of course, that one law, uh, the, uh, the law of the Sabbath, uh, is, is not repeated. And, in fact, uh, there's you know, Paul makes a statement. What about these Sabbaths? What about these special days? He said, well, let every man be persuaded in his own mind, well, which doesn't sound like the thou shalt and thou shalt not of the uh, Ten Commandments. Uh, but that's what he says uh, but it's but that's not a problem for the dispensationalist it's not a problem that one of those is is left out because the christian is not under the ten commandments qua the ten commandments as the ten Commandments okay instead he's got a new law that governs his conduct it doesn't you know just because we're not under the the, the mosaic law doesn't mean without we're without law entirely we already saw that It's not not as though I'm without law, but I'm not under law in the same sense as the Israelites were, Paul says. So rejecting the Mosaic law as binding on the New Testament believer does not make the New Testament an antinomian or someone who's lawless, as some would argue. There's a new law code. James calls it the royal law or the law of liberty. Paul calls it the law of love that supplies a new rule of life for New Testament believers. By some counts, as many as 1,300 rules are in the New Testament. Nearly twice, in fact, what you find in Exodus to Deuteronomy. Um, Now, again, just as in the Old Testament, these laws do not justify anyone. Okay nor can they even sanctify a person, but it does provide a rule of life that any true believer will desire and determine to follow. Okay. Okay. Uh, so bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, any resemblance of the law of Christ, the law of Moses, is not to be viewed technically as a continuation or carryover of the Mosaic law, but as a common expression of the divine expression of, uh, in separate law codes. And we should expect a lot of that. Because God's moral character, God's moral fiber doesn't change. He's immutable. And so whatever is immoral in the Old Testament is immoral in the New Testament. Still, we do find specific expressions or applications of uh, the, the moral character of God uh, that do not have intrinsic morality attached to them. Okay, So for instance, you know, the don't don't use mixed seeds or, or a mixed team pulling your plow. Why? Well, because God is holy. Well, the, the, the statement that God is holy lives on. But the expression of that holiness in, in not mixing teams apparently it no longer applies. It's not repeated. And in fact, that that those laws, along with a great many other laws in the Old Testament, are set aside and done with, and we don't have to We don't have to honor them in the least today, okay? Does that make sense? We're tracking? I feel like I've been talking and not giving a chance for questions, so I'll pause, get a little breath here. Okay, a couple of objections here first, and then we'll cut back to 13, hopefully we have time for that. Christian is obliged, some would say, to keep the moral laws, but not the ceremonial or civil laws. But we've said, uh, you know, that's that's sort of a standard reformed understanding. We have to obey the moral laws, but not the rest of them. But the, the problem with that is there's these texts that we've already seen that say that the law is indivisible. It rises and falls as a unit. If you oblige yourself to obey one law, you oblige yourself to keep all of them under penalty. Okay. So either the whole law has been set aside or... None of it. That seems to be the only options available to us. Okay? Some would say that the Christian is obliged to keep the moral laws, but the penalties are done. So you're still not supposed to talk back to your dad, but dad can't turn around and stone you. Okay. And, and, and you can spread, spread them all out. Okay? But I say here, for one to be under the laws, to be under the entire Mosaic legal system. Subject to its commands and liable to its penalties. So gutting a law of its enforcement cancels its value as law. I mean, if I I tell my kid, you know, you have to go to bed, but I'm not going to enforce it. It's not a law anymore. It's just advice at that point. As we've seen above, the function of the law was condemnatory. To oblige oneself to keep part of it is to oblige oneself to keep all of it. And to oblige oneself to keep all of it is to say, I'm toast, because I can't keep all of it. Only Christ can. Others would say that the Christian is under the law only as a rule of life. So it's not a way of getting to heaven, but it's a way of governing my conduct. Calvin, for instance, distinguished between the law as an office and the law as a rule of life. So there were certain things that were related strictly to Israel, and others... That were had continuing function. Luther and Melanchthon uh, talked about what they what they called about the third use of the law. They had a first and second use of the law, and 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 the third use of the law was uh, what was this one? The didactic functions. Okay, so there's a first law, civil use to have an orderly society. Second use, the pedagogical one, to point us to Christ. And the third use here was the didactic usage. This third use then would say, okay, this is how I live my life. Okay, so according to the moral codes. But these distinctions are really arbitrary. They really can't be sustained. Now, while they claim to retain the unity of the law, they really destroy its unity of function. It doesn't seem to fit with those texts that we saw that says the law rises and falls as a year next. Final objection here is that the function of the Mosaic law hasn't changed at all. And Paul's statement that the Paul, law, Christian is no longer under law is a response to legalism. But this is really makes nonsense of a lot of passages that talk about being under law as a good thing. You know, in, the, in the Old Testament, they were under the law. And that was good. They were obeying the law. And it was, and it was an appropriate thing. To be under law in the Old Testament. It's not an appropriate thing to be under law in the New because it's been set aside. Uh, where It's an anachronistic tool and no longer has application for us. Okay? That's the introduction, long introduction, 45 minute introduction. Okay? Now let's cut back here to page 13 for me. Is it 13 for? No, for, uh, for 13, for the where uh, we left off. There's a box here. Uh, model for determining whether a principle is transdispensational. So, when I look at, i you know I'm reading through Numbers right now in my scripture reading uh, for because you know, I'm trying to do three chapters a day, and so I'm 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 in the end of Numbers right now. At least my at least my uh, Bible reading plan has me in the end of Numbers right now, and I'm reading through this, and I'm I'm coming coming across an awful lot of laws an awful lot of rules. Well, what do I do with these rules? I mean, is it is do I obey them? Do I think, "Hey, I'm just glad I don't have to do all these things." Or, or what what do I do with them? Okay. Well, here's here's a here's a here's a grid I've tried to put together to decide uh, whether or not I should think of these rules as having some sort of of behavioral impulse attached to them, or whether they're simply informing things. Dispensationalists, as I say here, do not deny that principles and practice introduced in early dispensations continue today. We we, we recognize that God has a moral code. It is 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 an eternal moral code that binds people of every age. And it's reflected. You know, I sometimes draw it like this. This is, the, this, is the, uh, this is the overarching moral law of God, unchanging. And it has iterations, okay? This is what Adam's supposed to do. This is what Moses was supposed to do. This is what the church is supposed to do. This is what we're all supposed to do when we get to the millennia, okay? And so we have these law codes that drop down out of this eternal moral standard. Okay, and so we should see, we should expect to see a lot of overlap, not, not complete overlap because some of these things are specific to the, to the dispensation. Uh, the things that talk about how to raise an army in, in the Old Testament just don't apply to the church. Uh, yeah who knows maybe uh, after ISIS gets done with us we'll have to, but, but no i'm I'm joking there but uh, but but that's not that's not the function of the church, and so we, we recognize that those portions of the law uh, have absolutely no value for us in the church today as far as what to, as, as far as what we are supposed to do so there's continuing principles in that there are overarching moral principles that gov that govern everything, okay some suggest that God's moral standard changes, or develops, or evolves, and I think that's a, something I'm, I, I, I really want to sort of, sort of shoot down. It's sometimes used as the uh, the application of of uh, Matthew five, right? Uh, Moses said, "Don't kill," but I say to you, "Don't hate." Moses said, "Don't commit adultery." But I say, don't even look at a woman. Okay? And so some have come along and said, OK, well, God's moral standards are tightening. He's, he's, he's expanding uh, what his expectations are. But I don't think that's really what's going on in Matthew. Matthew is not saying here, hey, in the Old Testament, it was OK to hate people as long as you didn't kill them. No, that wasn't the point at all. The point was they really shouldn't have hated in the Old Testament. God didn't actually say this, but they should have deduced it. You know, don't do the things that lead up to killing someone. Okay, and so I think he's giving an explanation of the law, not an expansion of the law per se. Uh, so, because God's God's moral standards don't change because he's an immutable God with respect to his his morality. And again, we said covenantalists or Reformed folks typically offer options such as. The ceremonial, civil, moral division—the moral lives on; the cer- ceremonial and civil don't. Some would say the—and uh, is big words here—but they're not really. It's it's really not a hard concept here. Some suggest that the apodictic laws—these uh, are the, the, the uh, these are the thou shalts and thou shalts nots—live uh, on, but the case laws do not. So if. Your uh, neighbor steals one of your oxen. In this case, this is what you should do. Okay, so these are called case laws or casuistic laws, and those don't live on. Only the thou shalts and thou shalt nots. Okay, so these are these are artificial distinctions or divisions that are put into law as as an attempt to say, okay, which of these laws do we have to obey, and which of the laws can we disregard? Okay, that's that's the typical reformed answer but as we've said I don't think any of those really work okay so what what can we do so we, we see something in the Mosaic law to, to do X or don't do X is that something that is an expression of the eternal moral law of God or is this something restricted entirely to Jewish function well I've got some questions that I think you can ask to sort of to help you out in that question. I think we've got time here. First, is the principle part of the natural created order? There does seem to be a priority placed on the revelation given in the garden. These ground rules uh, that are there for the perpetuation of creation that extend to all dispensations. For instance, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth, eat the food of the earth cultivate the earth or do work I think. Others take the form of principles that were to be inferred. Capital punishment for murder is based on the creation of man in God's image. Genesis 9 says so. If, if someone sheds man blood, man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed because something happened at the creation. God created Adam in his image. Okay, Female headship. In the home or church, is a violation of the created order. That's what Paul says, because it reverses the role of the helper given to the woman. Okay, and if you have trouble with that, I'm not looking up right now because I don't want to look look at anybody specifically here. If you have a problem with that, take it up with Paul. Okay. Paul says homosexuality is not natural. It's not part of the original created order. I mean, we should be able to infer this, that there's no way to be fruitful and multiply and cleave and become one flesh. Biologically impossible. Okay, And, And Paul says as much in Romans 1. That's not natural. So don't do it. Divorce and adultery. Christ says in Matthew 19 and arguably polygamy violate the purpose of co- and, and covenantal marriage arrangement established in Genesis 2 okay, these things don't work according to the ground rules with which God created his universe <coughs> having then gone through that and you say okay what I'm looking at this rule it's not one of the ground rules Okay, so now we move to step 2 question 2 is the principle commanded and practiced in multiple dispensations and specifically in our own? And this is a complicated question because that answer is not always is not, is not, a, not always a simple one. Some New Testament commands, for instance, perpetuate identically or nearly identically revelation from the previous dispensations. Those are the easy ones. Okay? The New Testament says don't kill the Old Testament says, don't kill. Pretty easy. We shouldn't kill. Nine of the Ten Commandments are there. The summing up of the ethical standard. Love God, love your neighbor. That's in the New Testament. That's in the Old Testament. It's something that is is equally applicable across the board. That That is part of the ethical expectation of God from day one to day last. So, we can assume That these are that these are direct statements of the moral will of God, eternal principles that find statement in multiple dispensations. These are the easy ones. Now, this does not mean that the Mosaic Code is still in effect at those points, but rather that these are expressions of the all-encompassing moral expectation of God for all ages. But it gets harder. That that was the easy one. Becomes harder letter B some old testament practices appear in our dispensation in altered form so for instance a form of priesthood exists in the new testament but the high priesthood has been done away with and various priestly functions performed are performed by individual believers we're supposed to be a, we are in some sense a kingdom of priests ourselves and we are representing each other to to god in prayer um, and, and and in service. Okay, so we are functioning as priests for one another. And we are representing each other to God in prayer and in service. But there is no high priest anymore. You know? Ken Brown isn't your high priest. <laughs> I hate to break that to you. He's not a, he's he's a priest like the rest of us. <laughs> We have the priesthood of all believers. In fact, that's a sort of a standard Baptist principle. We're all equally priests. We all represent each other to God in prayer and in service. But there isn't a high priest because there's only one high priest. That's Jesus Christ. And so we have something of a carryover from Moses, but it's not the same. Very much altered form. From Noah. Forward, there is a requirement of submission to civil government, but the New Testament gives several broad commands to replace the specific ones during the theocracy. Okay, we have in in Romans and in Peter, for instance, a list of these are the specific ways you're supposed to re, re, relate to your human government, and we really need to remind ourselves of them occasionally because they're hard. Okay, uh, but you don't see lists like that in the Old Testament because. Everything was wrapped up in the theocracy. You obeyed God by keeping the law. And there really wasn't a division of church and state or temple and state. They were all sort of mixed and mingled together. Okay? So we have something of the similar principles, but it's very altered in form. So what do we do with these? Well, we can assume that eternal principles are in view. But the practical impl- implementation of these principles may vary as dispensational and cultural circumstances change. Okay, So every civil law that's in the Old Testament has a reason. We should try and figure out what that reason is. And then having discovered what that reason is, to operate in accordance with the principle, although not necessarily the application of that principle. Some commands, these are getting harder as we go, some commands appear in other dispensations but not ours. And I say actually there's four categories here. One, there are some commands and practices that demonstrably are fulfilled in Christ and have no application today. Animal sacrifices, for instance. Sabbath observance, which is the anticipation of the rest that is accomplished in the sacrifice of Christ. And so there is no Sabbath command today, not because we shouldn't rest or give time over to the worship of God, but because that specific idea of of this Sabbath rest, which is anticipated in 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 that seventh day, is actually dawned here in the present day. We have entered into his rest through the blood of Christ. And so that's why, to, to me, to, for most dispensationalists, it's fairly important to say there's no Sabbath. Because to say there's, the, the Sabbath continues is to say that the, the expectation hasn't been fulfilled yet. We're still waiting. And so many, many now, now, now this is not necessarily across the board, but uh, most dispensationalists will say it's important to us that we don't believe in Sabbath observance today. It's part of the system. Okay? Uh, But there's other, uh, obviously, there's there's division of opinion there. Some commands and practices demonstrably related to dispensational structures have no direct New Testament application. Direct application, so animal sacrifices, as rightly relating to the community, are suspended, but, as we're going to see, they're going to come back in the millennium. Not as a means of salvation, but as a way of being right with the community. That's that's gonna that's gonna it's one of those things. Uh, but we'll get there. Not tonight. Circumcision is an identifying sign of both the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenant people, but not our people. Okay, so the church is not under that rubric. The the entry right. Into the covenant people of God in the Old Testament was circumcision. What's the entry right for for entry into the covenant people of God in the New Testament? How do we get into the church? Through Christ. Okay, through Christ. But there's a right, a rite of passage, right. the baptism. baptism. Okay. In order to be accepted into, at least I think it is, right there. I'm <laughs> <laughs> talking to Kenny. Uh, but but yeah, you have to be baptized as an entry right and that doesn't mean that there's an equivalency between baptism and circumcision but at that point there is those are entry rights into the respective communities and they're disparate tithing for instance was a means of funding the political and cultic structures of national Israel but it's not mentioned except by illustration in the church okay, it's because it's a different structure it's funded differently. Thirdly here, I'm, I'm past time here. Some commands and practices further explicate clear creation motifs and otherwise trans- dispensational moral principles and probably should be regarded as equally trans- dispensational, as, as as broad, even though they're not repeated. So, for instance, incest and bestiality are not mentioned in the New Testament but because of the of where they appear in the text and the nature of them, we're probably talking about something that is broad. It's not as though incest and bestiality have suddenly become right. Same with premarital sex, which appears in the Old Testament in context with adultery as a violation of the covenant. That's, that's probably not something that you know been suspended now for the New Testament, even though a direct statement that premarital sex is wrong is, is is lacking in the New Testament. Abortion, which is specifically addressed in Exodus 21 as a moral principle, is clearly an instance of murder and is treated as such by God, and so in the New Testament, it's wrong because murder's wrong. I mean, it's, a, it's an extension of the command not to murder. Finally, this is the hardest one of all, commands demonstrably tied to transient cultural practices, have no direct application, but the principle persists. Okay? We'd already talked about the kid and its milk. Let's go to the next one. The injunction against muzzling an ox as it treads out the grain has been set aside, along with the rest of the Mosaic Code and, in fact, most of us don't have any ox at home, oxen at home. But the need for fair compensation remains. That's the principle. If he's going to do the work, he gets the reward. Okay? And that's a principle that continues. There's a, there's a work-reward relationship. If someone's going to do some work for you, you should reward them. The, the, and the laborer is worthy of his hire, is a, is a New Testament principle uh, that really reflects that. Paul's injunction for women to cover their heads is laced with culture, cultural symbolism that no longer exists. The principle of male headship, however, extends all the way back to creation. So it's probably, in their culture, a sign of of, of authority and, and submission to authority, which is why he had that. You know, one another one that comes to mind here is, you know, build parapets on your roof. Okay, why, why is that law in the Old Testament? Well, because people used to... Live on their roofs. Uh, it was the second floor, and if you got little kids running around, and there's no fence on the on the edge of your roof, and uh, a kid falls off and gets hurt, killed, and you're in trouble. So how do we apply that today? Well, not by building fences around our roofs, because at least my kids don't play on the roof. Uh, yeah, actually, but but that, that's that's not sure. But but the but the principle is still there, right? You know. Of, of, of liability okay you know, you know put up a stair railing uh, so you know all the things that your uh, insurance company makes you do because these are things that decrease liability and uh, and promote safety okay okay so all of that comes together to sort of give us a grid as we read these these Old testament laws to decide what to do with them and hopefully it was helpful um, there may be something that you know slips through the entire grid and Plung, climbed on the ground here, um, but it, I, hopefully at least it captured most of what you've come in contact with. Yes, Wes.
1: In <clears throat> reading the Old Testament, now I, I'm not sure the wording of the NIV and the King James uh, things that were listed as as abomination to God. Yeah. Okay, don't do this because it's an abomination to God. Now, <clears throat> does that? Do those rules persist? Because because it seems like abomination the guide shows not just not just it's always an abomination that yeah that it's always an abomination yeah. if it, if it was then it's always an abomination. yeah no, no, so that, yeah so anything that's an abomination is listed as abomination is always an abomination yeah, I'm, go- I'm going to say a tentative yes um,
0: I, I I can't remember everything on the list it's possible we've got something that's associative you know that uh, it is an abomination to do to do X, because X is a reflection of Y, and Y is an abomination. So it's possible you've got something like that. But right off the top of my head, I
1: can't remember the whole list. So it probably seems like possibly that's a rule. Uh, possibly yeah. that would. Be, yeah, yeah. Could be because a, if, it, if it's an abomination,
0: good. if it was an abomination, it's not as though it's now. It's not an abomination. Right. Because God's moral, moral. Fiber is immutable. Is, is yeah. There's no changes in that. It doesn't adjust or change or augment as you, as you go through time. Okay. okay. Thanks for being patient. You started a minute early, went six over, so
1: uh, I owe you. We'll see you next week.